Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we've heard it day in and day out from the Ontario government. You won't have to pay for private health care. Your credit card's not necessary. It's all going to be done on OHIP, right? But my guest, Dr. Pat Armstrong, argues that the real problem is pursuit of profit, not privatization. Hamilton City Hall's official whistleblower line is off to a roaring start with over $700,000 in waste and fraud uncovered thanks to reports on the hotline. John Best from the Bay Observer will talk to us about that. And some financial help coming for Ontario pot smokers. All coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Healthcare. I mean, it's always about healthcare because we're concerned about that. We're concerned about uh, the plan that seems to be in place right now between the premiers and the federal government. Uh, there seems to be some sort of a hybrid here between public health care and private health care. We're not quite sure what that means. I may be in, up to individual provinces, I guess, as to how it's going to be. But so some very, very legitimate concerns. You know, they always say the devil's in the details. We don't really know the details yet. There's a, an interesting uh, op-ed piece that appeared in the Toronto Star the other day that I think addresses a lot of those concerns and, and should be part of our discussion. Uh, the title of the piece is, In Healthcare, It's Not Privatization to Fear, It's Profitization. Uh, one of the co-authors of that piece is uh, Dr. Pat Armstrong, distinguished research professor at York University and also a fellow with the Royal Society of Canada. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to, to uh, talk about this and, and the implications that's going to have. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us. Good to be on and good to see this concern about an important issue. Well, and you raise an interesting point about this. And, and th- this is one of the things I've been concerned about ever since the premiers agreed that, okay, we're going to go with this deal. Uh, I know it's going to vary from province to province, so not unlike what they wanted with the child care program. Uh, and, and I know that some people seem to be increasing their, cons- their, their their comfort level uh, with private and public working together. But we don't know exactly what that means and what it's going to look like and where the money's going to go, do we? Well, we certainly don't know to what extent it will go to private delivery and especially for-profit delivery, which is what we are really concerned about in talking in that article, because it makes a huge difference whether the delivery of healthcare is by a corporation or not, because corporations have to be focused on getting profit. That's that's what they're there for. Not that you know they're necessarily bad people, but that's the purpose is to make a profit. And there are multiple ways to make a profit. And we feel strongly that there shouldn't be a profit made out of uh, healthcare. And we've seen what happened when profit was to be extracted from long-term care homes. Uh, it became particularly obvious during the COVID initial stages, but it's still an issue. So, and there are a number of issues that come out of profit. I think one of them is fragmentation, which I find very interesting because one of the big discussions has been about how we need a better integrated system, that you get an entry through a family practitioner to an integrated set of services. But if we have all of these private for-profit corporations operating, we're going to have even more fragmentation and even less control over the public money that is going into those corporations. You raised something uh, in the piece that uh, that you and uh, Armin wrote uh, that was in the Star about about privatization, and, and I'm glad you made that clarification. Nobody's saying these are bad people. Uh, these are 
corporations that are, you know, in there for, for the profit. And we get that. And then, the, you know, the, that's part of our society. But there's something going on here that, that I know you touched on in the piece that, that I think needs to be part of this discussion is uh, a lot of these huge agencies and for-profit corporations and mega corporations, and, and frankly, uh, places that are looking to make money these days have now targeted healthcare and housing as two of the things that they really want to invest in. In other words, they want to buy up businesses so they can increase their profit margins. And, and again, that's that's what they're in business for. We get that. But the more that they start to infringe on, on healthcare, the fewer options we're going to have, and they're going to have this huge mega corporation that's going to be making decisions about private healthcare delivery. And I, I, I got a concern about that, and I think a lot of people do. Well, and many of them are uh, controlled outside of the country as well. Yeah. So we have uh, even less say about them. They're allowed to keep certain uh, issues secret for the, because they're in a business as opposed to a public organization. We don't know for sure where all of the profits are coming from. And if you take, for example, the uh, case of private clinics in Ontario, the uh, the government is going to pay them more than they're paying in the public sector for those services. So we're going to be paying twice for those services through the OHIP that is publicly funded with our tax dollars and through this extra charges that are, are covered by the extra money that the government is giving them. So as taxpayers, we're tw paying twice and so saying you can pay with your OHIP card rather than your credit card is that's good because uh, we don't want people to be refused access on the basis of ability to pay. But it means we're paying all this extra money that could be going to some other form of care so that there can be a profit in these services. And we still have uh, standalone clinics in the public sector, at least in the nonprofit sector. Uh, they have been innovating for a long time. So we don't really need the for-profits in this system. We should stick with a non-profit delivery or public delivery of these services. Well, and the argument has always been, well, you know what, they're already there. If we wanted to invest in more public uh, clinics, et cetera, we'd have to build them and it's costly. This way, we don't have to pay for the, the capital costs. We just move in there. Uh, and it, it seems to some people like a very compelling argument. But as I say, I'm, I'm concerned about the money that should be going into healthcare that's going to go into there. And, and you know, when the, the premiers and the prime minister say, well, look at, you know, it's not going to cost you an extra nickel. Everything's going to be covered under your healthcare. <laughs> the profit margin is, is coming out of that as well. In other words, OHIP is paying for the profit margins for these corporations. And that's money that could be going into the private system, but it's not going to anymore. Exactly. And I find the argument very strange about um, we already have private, so why don't we have more? It's like saying we already have enough crime, so why don't we have some more? I mean, I'm not saying they're criminals, so I want to make that very clear, but I'm just saying it's just a dumb argument <laughs> because you have well, some. And, and, yeah, and they use the argument of family doctors who are, in, in by definition, small business people. So that's they, they are private practitioners who get compensated by the government. But that's one or two doctors, or sometimes it's a clinic with maybe five or six doctors. These are huge mega corporations, oftentimes, as you say, that are that are run offshore and and they're purely driven for profit. If a bunch of doctors open a clinic, um, sure they they don't want to go under. They're, there's they, they want to pay the bills and everything else. I get that, but they're still there because they're doctors. They believe in healthcare. 
the corporations are just there to try to make as much money as possible. And and the healthcare is the tool right now. And if, if healthcare is not the tool in five years, they'll divest themselves of that and move on to whatever is. That's how these corporations work. And, you know, their, their shareholders are happy campers for that. But is it really the best way for us to deliver healthcare in this country? Well, we've certainly seen that in long-term care in uh, the UK, especially where they allowed the proliferation of these for-profits. They have seen companies walk away when they they declare bankruptcy, walk away, and then what happens to the to the people who are in those long-term care homes? Because yes, if they're not making a profit, they they go out of business. And I and there's the fragmentation question is really important I, as well. I think someone was telling me the other day that they uh, were told by the hospital to go to one of these private labs for their blood test. And it's true that the fee is covered by OHIP, but then this person wanted their record to be on the hospital portal so you can check your own uh, tests, which is one of the things that the federal government is really supporting. And the lab said, oh, yeah, we can do that for $10 extra. Um, So it's a disintegration of the healthcare system rather than an integration of the healthcare system to uh, go for profit services. And I, I think that the question of control is really, really important because we don't know how they're making these profits that you were talking about. We don't know exactly where they're coming from. We don't know if it's skimping on supplies, for example, uh, or speeding up the period of time that you can be with your doctor. And it, and as you say, it's quite different for a doctor in private practice who gets a set fee for uh, what they are providing, and uh, they're not making a profit out of that set fee. And so the motivation is not the same. Uh, I think that, I mean, personally, I think that there is an issue with fee-for-service because it encourages you to do more services uh, and the more the ones that pay more. But uh, nevertheless, it's a very different kind of practice from one that is owned and operated by a corporation. And increasingly, those family practices are being run uh, by a corporation. And we have to watch that too. You used the uh, the example of long-term care. And I, I, I want to just delve into that if I could just a little bit, because we have some knowledge of that because we just lived through that crisis uh, during COVID. Although I, I would submit that it's been going on long before COVID. Uh, traditionally, the private sector that run uh, long-term care facilities uh, they tend to have higher mortality rates. Uh, there's a concern here. Well, I was going to say about uh, about you know, the 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 oversight, but there isn't a whole lot of oversight in Ontario with long-term care facilities anyway. So maybe that's a moot point. Uh, but they tend to make less money. The staff ed, that is, which means there's more turnover, which means they're understaffed because they've got to keep an eye on their bottom line. Um, it, the the way it's being explained now, though, Pat. Is is it looks as if they want to extend that whole procedure and that whole in, uh, environment in into a broader piece of of healthcare, not just long term care. Well, they're extending it to, even within long term care right now, even to some of the homes that had the worst records uh, during COVID. And as you say, we've known about these patterns long before. Uh, COVID happened. Uh, COVID just made them more visible, and they were more publicly recorded. So we, we we're investing in those same kinds of places, in in contradiction to all of the evidence. And if we think we can save money this way, uh, Saskatchewan just took over five extended care homes because their record was so terrible. 
they had the money to do that. So why don't you have the money to do it in the first place? Well, like you say, for every dollar that they're investing in that, and our premier uh, here in Ontario has already suggested that a good chunk of the money he's getting from the feds is going to go into the, the for-profit sector because he figures that's the more efficient way to go, which is not unlike what they did with the child care deal. I mean, they signed on with the federal government on that, but then basically said, yeah, but we don't really want to put all our money into into not-for-profit. We're going to put it into the other sector. And and that's their bent. I mean, you know, they're not surprising us with this, are they really, doctor? Because we, you know, they they tend to, you know, turn their backs on private or public sector and they it's a, you know, public enterprise, et cetera, et cetera. We know that mindset. So that they seem to be applying that now. But I, I guess the question we have to ask ourselves now, this is a pivotal point, uh, you know, from the early 60s when we, we developed our Medicare system here, which way are we going forward right now? And, and uh, a lot of people just aren't crazy about the direction which we seem to be heading. Well, and I think the whole discussion about private as opposed to for-profit really confuses the issue. As you were saying, it lumps the doctor in private practice in with a, a corporation owned in the USA, for example, and they're not the same kind of beast. They don't have the same kind of motivation. Uh, they don't have the same kinds of, of practices. So we really have to, and that's what we were trying to do in that article, is stop using that we already have private, as you mentioned earlier, uh, as a, an excuse to go in this direction and, and look at the evidence. There isn't any evidence really that there's more innovation in the private sector, that they have more money. It costs uh, it, uh, the government less to borrow money to invest. It costs us less in the long term to pay them off with the profit. And it gives us more control. So what exactly is the benefit of going to the for-profit sector? And we have to keep asking that over and over again. Well, and the concern here, again, is you can make all the rules in the world if you want, but a rule is only is worth the paper it's written on unless there's enforcement. And we saw that with long-term care facilities, didn't we, uh, doctor, where, uh, yeah, there were standards, uh, but if they didn't meet them, first, they didn't do much about it. I mean, first of all, there were very few inspections, so how, you know, how do you even know? And and secondly, I mean, even, you know, Minister LeBlanc was saying, okay, you know, we're going to hold people to account and there will be a fine system. We, they got to be caught and convicted first. And, and we don't seem to have the capacity to do that, too. I, I guess we're well, just about out of time. But the, the takeaway here is uh, this isn't this isn't signed, sealed, and delivered. There's a lot of work that needs to be done here. And uh, the, the fewer questions we asked, I think uh, we're kind of setting ourselves up for fewer disappointments down the, or more disappointments down the road. I think you raise a really important question about regulation. When we studied long-term care in the United States, we were told that they were more regulated than the nuclear industry, but they still have a low quality of care. And we, we did a comparative study of the various countries looking at uh, scandals and what happened in the wake of scandals. Most of those scandals were in for-profit homes. And in the wake of them, what we got was more regulation. And that regulation is being offered as a way that we can control these for-profits. But it, it's not only about all of the things you just listed, like does it make any difference? Do they apply them? Do they enforce them? Is there any real penalty for not doing it? Uh, in addition to that, we, we have the whole thing about creating huge bureaucracies. The same people who say they're going to cut red tape are telling us that, oh, well, regulations will fix this. And we've seen a proliferation of regulation with no good consequences other than 
the the staff spends more time filling out forms <laughs> rather than providing care with without real consequences in terms of improving care. So regulations aren't the answer either in terms of making sure that uh, profit doesn't become uh, a, something that really leads to incredibly bad consequences. Some very uh, germane points about this discussion uh, included in this piece. It's on the Toronto Star webpage at torontostar.com if uh, people want to read it. Uh, Dr. Pat Armstrong, doctor, thank you as always for this. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for your interest. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about by-elections, and I also want to talk about whistleblowing in, in politics. Uh, which uh, apparently is starting to have some impact. And to do that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program John Best. Uh, John is the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, watching things political in this area. Uh, John, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Bill. John, I, I'll get into the by-election in just a second, uh, but I want to talk about the piece that you guys did in the, in the Bay Observer about whistleblowing at Hamilton City Hall. Uh, and this was supposed to be uh, to, to facilitate those who see th- something that's wrong. Maybe it could be political, could be, I don't know what else, uh, what the parameters are. Uh, there wasn't much of an uptake on it. And a lot of people were rather skeptical about it. But you've done a follow-up on this. And uh, it seems to be, uh, well, you, as you mentioned in the piece, going on in record numbers now. Yeah, they're, uh, they're quite happy with the program, according to um, Charles Brown, the, uh, the, the Auditor General. They... They say they just came off the best year they've had, which is uh, something in the area of, I think, 120 complaints. And they they sifted through them. And um, as I said in the story, if it was baseball, they're batting 320, which isn't bad. So roughly a third of, um, of the uh, whistleblower complaints that they received uh, actually bore fruit and um, resulted in, you know, either finding out and out wrongdoing or, or you know, uh, incompetence or waste. Uh, so, yeah, it looks like the program's working pretty well. So there was a reticence in the first part of this, I guess, because some people don't want to come forward. They don't want to be singled out. They don't want to, uh, they are concerned, as we heard anyway, about repercussions on this. Should I really say something or should I just bury my head in the sand and pretend nothing's going on? Uh, have you noticed any discernible difference as to why the climate might have changed and people seem more willing to partake in this process? Well, I, I think it's just the nature of the way they established the process. It's totally anonymous. I, I think these people always did want to squeal, but you know there was concern about uh, making formal complaints and having to stand behind uh, what you filed. I mean, it's it's pretty much human nature. Uh, if your boss is uh, behaving, uh, let's say, unethically or stupidly, uh, you you know, it, and and you have to sort of go on the record to to call that out, chances are at the end of the day, you're gonna to say to hell that it's just too much risk and there'll be repercussions. So this system allows for anonymous uh, uh, reporting. In fact, it, that that is the system, it's totally anonymous. And as a result, uh, more people are are coming forward. You know, it's a, it's a corporation with 8,000 employees. And, uh, you know, when you get 8,000 people, you're going to get uh, some bad apples. That's uh, just the way it is by the, uh, you know, the law of averages. Okay, but when a, a complaint is filed, who does the investigation and who decides what to do about the information that they gather? It's, it's all handled by the Auditor General's office, um, uh, from what I can see. And, and, and presumably, if, if a complaint came in, a whistleblower complaint came into the auditor that that fell outside of his uh, 
uh, his area that, that he may choose to pass that on to somebody who is responsible. But this is mainly about waste, uh, money being waste, time theft. So they're all items that uh, have to do basically with wasting or misallocating money. It, so it's it's more or less handled by the uh, by the Auditor General's office. The reason I'm asking is because I think one of the more famous and maybe infamous cases of this occurred some years ago uh, with the Public Works Department. And and you talked about, you know, time theft and things of this nature where a number of employees uh, were accused of, of, of time theft, of, of, you know, not punching in when they should have, of sitting around doing nothing, of selling uh, material. I think it was tar in this particular case. It was being used to patch up roads uh, for private purposes. Uh, a number of people got fired as a result of that investigation, as thorough as it might have been. Uh, but that's that was not the end of it. That's really the beginning of it. Uh, legal action ensued, and my understanding is, I think at the end of the day, most of them were hired back, as, and uh, it, it did not go well. I, I assume they've smoothed this process out. Yeah, they uh, under their they were all typically union uh, members, and uh, they managed to uh, get reinstated. I think almost every one of them, but. You know, I mean, those people have to look at themselves in the mirror, their family, you know, would you be proud of your dad if he was a, a time thief? And and they were off the job for an extended period of time before the, uh, you know, before the uh, reversal of the ruling came in. So, uh, you know, that, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when you when you behave the way these guys did, you remember the joke that was going around was something like what's what's green and white and sleeps for. And it was a city of Hamilton crew cab, um, you know, so there was a lot, a lot of notoriety about that. And um, there, we didn't see in this report any particular instances of time theft, because that is a slippery slope, having had that experience a few years ago. Yeah, you just wonder about you know the the follow through and what's going to happen as a result of that, and and I, I know I heard from a lot of those people and they were pretty bitter about it. And, and uh, we talked to the then city manager and and the uh, the, the the you know the head of that particular uh, the, the politician that had the, uh, that committee, and they were adamant about it. And and you you make a valid point though. Uh, they were reinstated. I don't think anybody ever said no. Don't worry about it. Nothing really happened here. They just reinstated them for I guess legal reasons. So it sounds as if it's a, it's a much better process now. Let's uh, swing over to the by-election. Uh, just to remind yes. people, in the last provincial election in October uh, in Hamilton Center, uh, Andrea Horvath was the MPP, and of course she was the leader of the provincial party. She uh, did not, well, she won her seat, certainly, uh, but uh, the NDP did not do well in that election. Doug Ford was reelected, so she, she stepped down. Uh, boy, I know a lot. Of, I'm bringing people up to speed on this, John, because it's been so long. I'm sure a lot of people forgot. Uh, this was the last day that they was is eligible for them to call it. Why did they wait so long for a government to call an election like this? I'm I'm just guessing, Bill, but it it seems to me that the conservatives are are making a real effort to capture this seat. Um, it seems counterintuitive to think of a conservative winning in Hamilton Center. Uh, the seat has been largely NDP since. <clears throat> since the 90s but um you know with andrea out uh you know it uh, it opens up uh, the seat like it's never been opened up before and uh, the conservatives have nominated um, a police officer who uh on on the face of you say oh well a, a cop uh, you know in a writing like hamilton center hasn't got much of a chance but this pete weisner has got quite an interesting uh, resume. He's done a lot of community outreach work, uh, a lot of street level 
uh, one-on-one with uh, disadvantaged people. So he's not your usual, I heard him described uh, by somebody who spent some time with him recently as a, as kind of a red Tory. So, so he's an interesting character. And I'm also told that uh, money is no problem in terms of that campaign. Uh, I think we've already seen it. Uh, he, he ran some uh, some newspaper ads before the writ was even dropped. And, uh, you know, normally uh, that's a sign that uh, the war chest is full. The election bill is is less than, tw- it's 27 days from today. It's uh, So it's going to be a quick campaign. And, uh, and, and you know, some, some strong candidates there, let's face it. Uh, Deirdre yeah. Pike, she, um, you know, she's, she's going to work hard. Uh, her, uh, I think, if there's a, a negative, it's going to be simply that the party has no leader. Uh, that's going to be a disadvantage. She she only got about thirty five hundred votes last time, but that was the anti Kathleen Wynne election, where there was a you know nobody was going to win uh, at that time. Uh, and plus, of course, she was running against uh, Andrea Horvath, so that was a bit of a lost cause. So she'll she'll do better, I'm sure. Um, and uh, then you've got Sarah Jama. She's going to be interesting. Uh, she'll have, um, uh, you know, all the NDP boots on the ground. Uh, plus, I would say that uh, Andrea would have left that writing association in fairly good shape financially. So she's going to, I think, going to be able to uh, put on a good show. Uh, the, you know, her, her issue about defunding the police and the, and the trouble she had where she, she and others were arrested and then they agreed to a peace bond. That is going to be an issue. Um, it's not going to go well, especially away. Especially since one of the candidates she's running against is a police officer. Well, and I'm told that, that it was his foot that she ran over with her, with the wheelchair, um, so I hope it doesn't get too personal, but, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting campaign, Bill. Uh, we've got, well, you know, some strength uh, at, at all three levels. There's a, a green candidate as well running. Um, so, you know, 27 days, I, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with uh, just, uh, I think this is one where the air war could be important. There's quite a few signs up in in the uh, ward in the writing already. And, uh so it's you know it's going to be an interesting uh, election given for the first time uh, that I can remember that the conservative at least will be a contender. And and that's that's unusual. I was just trying to think of you mentioned about how long this has been an NDP seat, uh, both well federally to a certain extent, but certainly provincially. Uh, Andrea Horvath held it for a number of years. It was David Christofferson that held it before her and, and until David moved on to federal politics. Uh, and I'm, I'm just trying to, this, I'm just going through my mind's eye here, but I, I can't think of uh, the last time a conservative held a, at that seat in, in the central city. This is Hamilton Center, of course, uh, for those outside the city. It's, it's one of the older sections of town. It's right downtown. Uh, and it stretches essentially from, from the mountain brow all the way to the bay. And uh, uh, it's, it's, Characteristic. I mean, there's some heavy industry at one end of it. Uh, there's a, a real concern about poverty, about uh, transient uh, populations and things of this nature. And also one of the areas, one of the lowest voter turnouts in this area. So you, you add that factor with the fact that it's a by-election and those by-elections usually have low turnout. Uh, you got to wonder how much, effort, you know, how much effort and how many votes is it going to take to win this thing? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it, you know, you could win it with, uh, you know, four or 5,000 votes. 
The other thing that could be an issue um, in that um, uh, race is the, uh, the, in the safe injection site that the council just approved, which is going to be in the ward. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, that is uh, for that to actually come to reality, it requires approval by the province and the feds. I think the feds put up the money and the or the, the feds, I guess, authorize what would otherwise be the illegal use of drugs. So I think that's their role. The province has to put up the money to operate the thing. And um, so that could be a that that could be an issue, even though it's uh, not specifically on the ballot. But there's a lot of churn in that riding right now. Um, um, you know, the the Walter Furlan, who ran against uh, unsuccessfully uh, ran against uh, the councillor Narinder Nan. He's leading a group of people that are opposed to that um, to that uh, injection site, which is going to be right next to the Dairy Queen on on Barton. And uh, and it's close to you know St. Anne's School. Um, he's uh, probably going to work with the Conservative candidate, and uh, you know he's uh, he didn't win at the municipal level, but he's got a team that, if he put it to uh, you know to the service of one of the candidates, it, it could be helpful from a boots on the ground perspective. And and just to put this in perspective, I, as I say, I don't remember the last time a PC candidate actually won. Uh, there, I, I guess federally, some time ago as well. But uh, I, I don't know that too many people gave Neil Lumsden much of a chance in Hamilton East Stony Creek, which is the the writing right next door to that. Uh, and he won, and of course he's in cabinet now in in the in the Ford government. Uh, I don't know if there's a trend going on. I mentioned a transient population in that ward, but there's also uh, a lot of new Hamiltonians that live in that ward too, aren't there, John? That you know yes. uh, have moved in here. They they maybe bought condos downtown, etc. So there, there could be a shift in in attitude there. Yeah, I think it's a, a transitional ward. I think it still largely is as you described it, and it's, it's certainly one of the highest poverty levels and one of the highest uh, public health uh, concern uh, wards. But it is changing. Uh, when the LRT is built, um, it's going to result in a whole raft of uh, condos. Right now, most of the condos are concentrated downtown, but that's going to extend more easterly uh, once the once the LRT becomes a reality. And uh, you're going to see, as you are everywhere in Hamilton, you're going to see more Toronto people uh, moving into Hamilton. It'd be interesting to know what their political persuasion is. Uh, I don't think there'll be a factor just yet, but uh, it's coming for sure. John, best of the Bay Observer. John, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Uh, have a great uh, Family Day weekend. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Bill. It was nice to be with you. Good to have you with us as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We, from time to time, want to get some updates on what's going on with the cannabis industry. Here's Ontario especially. Uh, the legalization of cannabis uh, a few years ago now was a very contentious issue. Uh, the rollout of it uh, was very contentious. It did not go well. There were a lot of bumps and and, and detours along the way uh, because of uh, jurisdictional problems, etc. Uh, but it was supposed to be at at, at the outset uh, a way for us. To, well, basically, it was going to be an industry, and you know, it was going to generate money for the the provinces, and that was one element of it. But the other, it was supposed to be the death knell for the. Uh, black market for uh, cannabis. I uh, don't know that that's happening. The latest uh, story we have now is that uh, the cannabis store, the Ontario cannabis store is now reducing price margins to try to help pot shops compete. Uh, and that's usually an indication that things are not going as well uh, from a retail standpoint as they would like to see. 
the OCS, which is responsible for distributing weed to retailers, uh, announced the change on Thursday and said it was going to be implemented by September. So why are they doing this? And is this going to be an effective way to try to get this industry on its feet and, and stabilized? I want to bring uh, Mitchell Osak into the conversation. Mitchell is the CEO for Quanta Consulting Incorporated. Uh, Mitchell, good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here again. Thank you. You've done some analysis on this, and maybe I'll go right to that question I was just asking rather rhetorically, but I'm sure you've got some some data on this. Uh, just about everybody who was involved in this and supported this uh, at, at the outset said, you know, this is going to make it so it's going to be almost uh, impossible for the, for the underground market to compete because we're going to be so good, so efficient at this, uh, that, uh, that that's going to just basically, if not disappear, but become a non-factor. Uh, it's been a few years right now. The fact that they're, they're having to reduce price margins, uh, does that indicate that maybe the underground market's winning the war here? Uh, no, Bill, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I would just say that the war is taking a lot longer than people anticipated, as you correctly pointed out. The, the price declines are, are a function of a variety of things, uh, one of which is that the, the markups or the margins, the OCS take, are among the highest of any of the monopoly provincial wholesalers in the world. And there's been a lot of pressure, not only by Ontario retailers, but licensed producers across Canada to bring those margins and markups in line with what uh, is being charged around the country. So there is a lot of pressure on the OCS from a lot of different places to sort of reduce their cost to serve the market. Just to that point, though, I, I want to delve into greater detail what you were just saying there. Uh, but the stat I saw here just said that uh, that forty three percent of of cannabis sales is still uh, being done by the illicit pot market. Are you surprised that number is still that high? Um, I am surprised. I would have expected it to be lower. But if you look at some major uh, and older mature markets in uh, the United States, for example, Colorado and so on, it literally took five or six years for the, um, the illicit market to drop to about 20% of total consumption. So I would have anticipated uh, 43% to be much lower. But on the other hand, we're going in the right direction. It's just taking a lot longer. Are, are the legal stores, here we call them, we'll just try to put that kind of an umbrella over them, I guess, Mitchell. Uh, are they competitive price-wise? Yes, we have. We're fortunate enough in Ontario to have some of the lowest cannabis prices in North America, not on every product, but certainly prices have come down substantially, not only in the last year, but since legalization in October of 2018. One of the challenges, however, and this speaks to your, to your original point, is that the illicit market has also dropped their prices to keep their market share. So consumers are better off, but the reality is is that uh, not a lot of retailers or producers are making money, and the illicit market continues to hang in there and take a lot of the consumption. One of the concerns, I guess, probably goes all the way back at the first year or so of, of, of the rollout here, Mitchell, was uh, product availability. A, a lot of the things that you talked about, edibles and so many others, just were not available up here uh, for a variety of reasons, I guess. Has that been rectified? It's been rectified um, in some cases, and in other cases, the problem has gotten worse. So what we have in, in Canada, as well as Ontario, is we often have an imbalance between what consumers want and what's available on the shelf. So, for example, there's about a billion and a half grams of dried flour cannabis in Canada 
that is sitting in vaults of licensed producers that nobody wants to buy, either because the quality is poor, it's stale dated, or what have you. But on the other hand, we have specific edibles and craft flour, like small batch, um, high quality flour from different parts of Canada, that is in such high demand that retailers can't keep it on the shelf. So it's the best of times and it's the worst of times when it comes to product supply. Uh, so these are all, I guess, a kind of a storm here that's uh, created uh, uh, the, the circumstance that we're in right now. One of the other phenomena, I mean, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this, Mitchell, because a lot of people have some questions about this. Uh, when the legalization first was rolling out, and, and as we say, there were some bumps and, and some detours even along that way, uh, everybody seemed to be on board. I mean, there were, you know, there were plants that were going to pop up, or at least planned to be popped up anyway, all over the place. I mean, I, I saw four or five of them up in uh, the Collingwood area, Barry area, places like that. None of them have have, have actually been built because uh, I don't know. Has the industry leveled off? Did, are they uh, disappointed in in the uptake? Was there an initial surge that has simply leveled off right now? What, what's the status when it comes to producing? Well, you you nailed it uh, in that last statement, full of pot puns. Essentially, what happened is, uh, in anticipation of legalization and right afterwards, uh, licensed producers tremendously overbuilt the potential capacity and supply for cannabis across Canada. And that was an anticipation for an industry that was expected to generate around now about $8 billion at retail in terms of revenue. What we've seen, though, is that, and, and there's a lot of good reasons for this, is that consumption has increased but not at the anticipated rate. So for 2023, we're anticipating national Canadian retail cannabis sales of approximately $4.5 billion. So you have all this capacity that was built for a market that hasn't developed as quickly as it needed to be. And that's why you have this massive imbalance. And that's why you have this high inventory. And that's why you have a lot of struggling licensed producers. So is that is that going to improve i mean you know for, for these places that planned on for instance building a, a, a production facility that haven't done it yet are, are they just biding their time um i think they've probably shelved their plans there's so much excess capacity that you can buy often for 10 or 20 cents on the dollar that it doesn't pay an entrepreneur to invest in building a new greenhouse or outdoor uh, growing facility. It's just not worth it. So what we're expecting to see is a lot of licensed producers and some retailers unfortunately go bankrupt because they just don't have the revenue and they don't have the cash flow to be able to support their production. That is very typical of any early stage industry where you get a boom and quickly followed by a bust. But over the next couple of years, we expect the supply to more quickly and more efficiently align with the actual demand in Ontario as well as Canada. Uh, final question on this, and I'll go back to, as you say, the big rush to try to get into production facilities. Almost every one of those was opposed in, in an awful lot of those communities. Uh, is the stigma changing? Uh, the, some people were just dead set against this, you know, and the devil weed and, you know, all this other stuff, gateway, you know, narcotics and things of this nature. Uh, has that dissipated? Yes, it has. So, it, you know, there aren't perfect statistics, but right around the time of legalization, of adult use legalization, roughly seven out of every 10 Canadians were in favor of uh, legalization. That number has probably increased to eight 
or eight and a half out of 10 Canadians. And a lot of the early fears around smoking and driving and gateway drugs and all of those things that you just talked about never came to fruition. So, you know, fortunately, Canadians are waking up and realizing the world didn't come to an end. Cannabis is a, is a highly regulated, safe product when consumed responsibly. And they are, you know, going to it in droves. And that's why you see consumption going up. Like cigarettes and like alcohol, you will always see a certain number of Canadians stigmatize this product and avoid it. That's, that's inevitable. But the reality is, is that the vast majority of Canadians are happy with legalization and especially happy with the tax revenues that are generated from it. Uh, I'm so glad you had some time to spot, spend with us this morning to get an update on this too, because uh, uh, so many people that that are invested in this—I don't just mean financially, but otherwise too—in this industry, and uh, uh, it's it's moving in the right direction. Maybe just not as fast as we thought and hoped that it would. Mitchell, thank you so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Have a great day. Mitchell Osak, uh, CEO of Quanta Consulting Incorporated. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.